0: Hi everyone, I'm back with another episode. Uh, Firstly, thank you so much if you're back and you're listening again. And if you're a new listener, welcome. I've had a little bit of a hiatus, um, just some kind of technical things and also world things going on have been a little distracting. Um, And then on top of that, it's been really hard to find some time and space that is quiet so I can record. So I apologize for the little break that we've had. So something I learned in doing this is that some stories and people and places that I think are really well known and famous aren't really so much. I had decided when I was working on this episode to do a little guess the story subject on Facebook and Instagram, thinking it would be a really easy guess. And what I found out, however, was that it's really not as well known as I thought. So I'm sorry to those who racked their brains and I'm going to do a shout out to you guys anyway because people really did try. So shout out to Colleen and Sherry on Facebook and to at plastic underscore cheapies and at frost 1616 for trying. So you guys are awesome and I hope you'll enjoy this episode. This is what I think is great about this podcast though. I love to know that not only am I learning about new and interesting things, but I love that other people are also obviously learning something new as well. I've had some stories in the past that I've overlooked because I didn't want people to get bored. I thought, they've probably heard this a million times, there's nothing new here. But in learning these things with this episode, I'm not going to make those assumptions anymore. So this episode is all about the Donnelly family, or also known as the Black Donnellys. And this is a story from the province of Ontario and not too far from London, Ontario, in a place called Lucan. I wanna give a quick shout out to Thomas from the Lucan Area Heritage and Donnelly Museum who spoke to me for this episode. So as always, Please be sure to follow or favorite the show on whichever platform you listen on. I would love it if you would leave me some reviews as well. This all helps me to create and keep creating this podcast. Now let's get into this very complicated story. James and Joanna Donnelly married in 1840 in Ireland. Their first son, James Jr., entered the world shortly after and the Donnellys, like many others at that time, wanted to immigrate to Canada in search of a better life. Life in Ireland at this time was horrible for people. This was a time known as the Great Famine or the Irish Potato Famine. This was the worst famine in Europe at the time and it appears as though the Donnellys left just in time. The actual year they arrived is up to some debate, but it was around 1842 to 1846. According to Britannica.com, Ireland's population in 1844 was around 8.4 million. And as a direct result of the famine, it fell to 6.6 million by 1851. That's a substantial loss of life, at almost 2 million people. Both James and Joanna had been poor their entire lives and wanted so badly to build a homestead of their own. So knowing where they were coming from and the dire situation that they left, we can get a sense of desperation and the hopes that this family had for their new son and future children and themselves, and they really had nothing to lose. They arrived in Canada and first settled in London, Ontario, where their second son William was born. But it would soon become pretty apparent to the couple that city life was just not for them. So they sought to fulfill the dream that they set out with to have their very own homestead. They made their way to a place called Lucan in Ontario, Canada. Now, there were some options for immigrants coming to Canada at this time. One was to lay claim to a parcel of farmland owned by Canada Land Company and to lease to own. Of course, you could just straight out buy the land. But there was another way to acquire land that was not quite above board. This tactic was basically choose a plot of vacant land and take it over. This was pretty common with settlers who just flat out couldn't afford to even lease the land. There were instances also where a landowner was not present and therefore didn't check on the land regularly, which left it open to squatters. James had chosen such a plot of land. 100 acres at Lot 18 on the Roman line, owned by a man named Mr. John Grace, who had no knowledge of the small family of four, that moved onto to this land. James put up a crude log home and he began to clear the land. Over the next almost 10 years, the family grew to nine with the births of John, Patrick, Michael, Robert, and Thomas. And all while the family, and especially James, worked the land, but in 1855, that landowner, John Grace, re-emerged and he sold the land that the Donnellys were living on. The land was sold to a man named Patrick Farrell. And much to his surprise, when he arrived to begin his life on his newly acquired 100 acres, he found the Donnellys already there. Obviously, John Donnelly was not about to just hand over this land that he'd been working his butt off on for the last 10 years. He didn't care if the land was legally purchased or not. His blood, sweat, and tears had more than paid for his right to be there. So James stood his ground and refused to just give up what he believed was his. But Patrick Farrell was also not one to back down. The matter went to court, and because this was such a common practice, there was actually something in place called Common Law Property Rights, And it was basically acknowledged that the Donnellys, even as squatters, had rights too. After all, they had kept the land well and had done considerable work. So it was determined that they were also entitled to a portion of the land, and a compromise was reached. The Donnellys were allowed to keep the northern half of the property, and I believe he was allowed to officially purchase it for $50. Patrick Farrell was then given the southern 50 acres, but apparently he had paid $200 for the whole lot. At this point, I can understand the feelings on both sides. The Donnellys came from this awful life in Ireland and were determined to create something better for themselves. James Donnelly worked extremely hard on this land for 10 years, and I can understand not wanting to give it up. But on the other hand, I of course understand Patrick Farrell too. He purchased, legally, this land, and even if it was common for squatters to lay claim, he did everything the right way, and to still only get half of the land, but for the price of the entire land? That would absolutely make you think ill of your new neighbor. Maybe even hate them. This is the incident that really began a larger rift, and not just between the Donnellys and Patrick Farrell, but also with the entire community of Lucan. This rift would fester, and it would grow, and ultimately, it would end in multiple deaths. Now back then, there was something called a bee. And this was like a neighborhood get-together. The community would come out and help with something, whether it was clearing the land of logs or trees, or a quilting bee, or even a barn-raising bee. The community would rally together to complete a task. Usually along with everyone coming out to help, there would be alcohol provided, and maybe even a little party after. So in late June of 1857, most of the neighborhood was at a bee. Now in some reports, I've seen that it was a logging bee, and some say that it was a barn-raising bee at a fellow neighbor's land. Either way, most of the neighborhood was there, and this included James Donnelly and his now rival, Patrick Farrell. The community began to take sides in the matter, and the Donnellys had friends who believed that his hard work earned that land for him. And there were others who believed that Patrick was slighted, and the Donnellys should leave not just the land, but the community. I believe at this point, there had also been a petition to the courts to get the Donnelly family kicked out of town. The tension that night would explode, and a fight would break out, leaving one of the men dead. Now, again, this took place almost 150 years ago, so we can't be sure 100% who started the fight that night and exactly what happened. There are, however, many claims that state that the two had a verbal altercation and it was Patrick who threw the first punch and the two men were embroiled in a fistfight. Patrick was knocked to the ground. It's then believed that as James was walking away, Patrick picked up a hand spike which is a tool used in logging, and I'll have a photo on the blog for reference. Patrick came at James with one of these, and James, in self-defense, hit Patrick in the head with another handspike that he was able to grab. This left Patrick Farrell dead. James went into hiding, and I read some articles that said during his year on the run, in quotes, it is suspected that he was possibly still working his land the entire time, but in disguise. People claimed to see a woman working in the fields who was not Joanna Donnelly. The couple's last child, Jenny, was born in this time. After about a year, some reports say almost two, James did turn himself in, and he was sentenced to death by hanging in September 1859. Joanna panicked at the potential of losing her beloved husband, petitioned for clemency, Due to the fact that there were witnesses who testified that James was acting in self-defense that night, clemency was granted and his sentence was reduced to seven years in the Kingston Penitentiary. During the time that James was in jail, Joanna worked really hard to keep the land. She took out a mortgage and even sold off part of the land for a small schoolhouse to be built, and in 1865, James Donnelly would be released and returned to his home. Now, at this point, his eldest sons were in their early 20s and had a few run ins with local community members and law enforcement. William was charged with larceny and robbing a post office in a neighboring community in 1869, but he was acquitted. In around 1873, William Donnelly started a very successful stagecoach line. They ran between London, Lucan, and Exeter, and it was extremely successful. The Donnelly brothers were all in on the business. Stagecoach lines were huge back then. They would not only transport passengers, but also packages as well. Some articles even say that the Donnelly stagecoach business was even rivaling local mail stages. A local rival company called Flanagan and Crawley Stage was run by an Irishman named Patrick Flanagan, who was hell-bent on putting the Donnellys out of business. This spawned a feud between the two stage lines, and it got very nasty. Stages were destroyed by fire or smashed, horses were killed, passengers and drivers alike were injured. Most of the incidents that occurred, if not all, were blamed on the Donnellys. Were they completely innocent? I'm sure they weren't. But no matter what, it seemed as though the community had just labeled the family as bad, as troublemakers. In 1875, some of the charges were as follows. James Jr. charged with stealing and also assaulting Thomas Gibbs. He was convicted of the assault, but not the theft. One of the Flanagan drivers is killed when a wheel falls off. They suspect tampering by the Donnellys, so one of the Flanagan employees cuts off the Donnellys' coach, which caused them to dump their passengers. William charged the Flanagans who paid damages, and then the Donnellys paid damages to their customers. A man named Joseph Berryhill challenges the Donnellys to a fight, and the Donnellys and another man, James Keith, are charged with assault, with one of the brothers being convicted. Another man, James Curry, claims that Keith, James Jr., and Thomas Donnelly robbed him and assaulted him, but nothing comes of the charges. The stables of Flanagan and Crawley are burnt to the ground, and the Donnellys get in a fight with a man named Rhodey Kennedy, who blamed them for the fire. He was later charged with perjury. Rhodey Kennedy was also a policeman, by the way. So there are many, many, many more incidents like this. Everything going back and forth, everyone fighting, thefts, sabotage, and everyone's pointing fingers. It was clear, and something that I knew about the Donnellys from the start, is that they never shied away from a fight. And I think that people around them knew this, and would provoke them. A private detective and a number of local constables went to a wedding in 1876 to arrest the Donnellys on a laundry list of accusations and charges, and a riot broke out. Shots were fired, and a hunt was on for the brothers. Many other townspeople came forward with complaints and old charges, Most of the charges eventually led to nothing. However, William and John are sent to jail for the assault of Constable Bowden. In 1877, the firstborn son of James and Joanna died. The cause of death is possibly illness, but some claim that he was shot. Now, I'm sure you're like me thinking those are wildly different, and I'm not sure what the true reason was and how the conclusions were made when those were just wildly different. It was also around this time that the railroad began to pick up steam, and stage lines closed, including the Donnellys' business. Local law enforcement really seemed to put a target on the family by 1878. James Carroll and Constable Samuel Everett had their sights set. Charges on the brothers of assault, and even a charge on Joanna for, quote, abusive language were filed. The Donnellys threw a charge right back at the constable and threatened to shoot them. Constable Everett, in particular, claims that Robert Donnelly did shoot at him. Robert was charged and sent to the penitentiary for two years. Now get this, a year later, Constable Everett is convicted of assaulting another constable, and at that time he confessed that he wasn't sure it was Robert who shot at him. But Robert Remained in prison for the rest of his sentence until 1880. So, is your head spinning yet? Mine definitely is and was in this case. There was so much back and forth going on here, and it's really hard now looking back trying to figure out who might have done what, who was complaining about who. So imagine what it would have been like living in this town. The constant back and forth would have been so frustrating and exhausting. I should quickly mention that there was one more element in this whole saga, something that even to this day can be a very touchy subject, religion. The Donnellys were Catholic and lived, as I mentioned, on the Roman line, which was named for Roman Catholics who settled there. The Donnellys, however, were very friendly and accepting of Protestants, and apparently James Donnelly even donated money at one point to help with the building of an Anglican church, and the catholic community was outraged associating outside of the catholic faith was seen by most as a great sin and basically treason against the faith so up until now the troubles surrounding the family and the bad blood ran deep in lucan <laughs> Whiskey Girls apparel is an adventurous and rebellious brand focused on creating both stylish and comfortable pieces and takes edgy streetwear and pairs it with feminine styles for the ultimate look. Whiskey Girls takes inspiration from poetry, whiskey, and the world around us. Whiskey Girls is dedicated to making women feel more confident and sexy while maintaining comfort. Whiskey Girls has launched on June 11, 2020 and has dropped some dope graphic tees, scrunchies, and more. You can check it out online at whiskeygirlsapparel.ca or on Instagram and Facebook at Whiskey Girls Apparel. So make sure to check them out. Now, back to the show. In 1879, Father Connolly arrived to head up the church, and he immediately learned of this troublesome family. It's at this time that something shifted in the town and something was set in motion that would see the deaths of almost the entire Donnelly family. And this was the formation of a vigilante group called the Vigilance Society. So, Father Connolly originally started a group called the Peace Society and had their community rally for support for different causes. One of these causes was to have everyone sign a pledge which would allow each home to be searched for stolen property. The Donnellys did not sign this pledge. And I personally feel like this was pretty transparently about them. And I'm sure it was clear to them at the time as well. If that was me, I probably wouldn't have signed it strictly on principle alone. And shortly after this was when a side group broke off and started the vigilante group known as the Vigilance Society. So a cow went missing around this time, and the Vigilance Society headed straight to the Donnelly property. The cow was eventually found later, back at home, on its original property. The Donnellys obviously felt violated, and felt that the group just trespassed on their land, looking for a cow that was found back at home. James Carroll, who we already know had some issues and run-ins with the family in the past, was now made constable and he made a promise to the community to get rid of the Donnellys. Carol is a part of the Vigilant Society, and he continued to spread and promote hate of the family around the town. People who didn't mind the Donnellys, or who were friends with them, started to become scared of associating with them, for fear of putting a target on their own back. So Carol's plan was working, it seemed, at least in further isolating them from the community. The Vigilant Society even seemed to work hand in hand with the police, with Carol being a member, obviously, and that's so corrupt, it's not even funny. Carol had gone to the family home at one point to arrest Thomas on some old charges, and he escaped. It was the Vigilant Society, along with the constables, who then held a search for the missing son. In January of 1880, a Lucan resident named Patrick Ryder's barn burned down, and the Vigilance Society immediately blamed the Donnellys. Now, Thomas, John, and William were at a wedding that night, so they decided it must have been the 60-some-year-old parents, James and Joanna. Personally, I think that the group was just waiting. They were waiting for something, anything, to come along that would allow them to carry out their own form of justice— and rid Lucan once and for all of this troublesome family. The original plan supposedly was to go to the Donnelly home and lynch the male members of the family. Now, for those who aren't familiar with the term, lynching is when a mob, without legal backing, would grab the victim and then hang them to death from a tree. The plan did, however, evolve, and they planned to hurt the men to the point of confession, Then they would arrest them. They wished to obtain a confession of all their transgressions against the community. The supposed members of this society were approximately 30 men, including James Carroll. They met at the Cedar Swamp Schoolhouse in the evening of February 3rd, 1880. They had some drinks to build up their courage and get them amped up to carry out this plan. They apparently drank until around 1 a.m., The mob then proceeded down the Roman line, armed with a plethora of weapons. Firearms, a pitchfork, axe, shovel, shortened stakes, and wooden clubs. Witnesses heard and saw the group as they headed to the Donnelly home. There were a couple of things that the group was not planning on. One, that John Donnelly left the home and went to Jim Keefe's house, and then to his brother Williams. And that, two... A little boy named Johnny O'Connor was spending the night, and he would become witness to the horrific scene that was about to unfold. It wasn't uncommon for Johnny O'Connor to stay the night, as he helped out often around the farm, and his family were good friends with the Donnellys. That night, he was a guest along with Joanna's 21 year old niece Bridget, who was visiting from Ireland. The family had finished dinner and decided to head to bed. Being a small home, they had to double up on sleeping arrangements. Johnny and James shared the bed in the front of the house. Joanna and her niece Bridget slept in the next room, and Tom retired to his bed in a little room by the kitchen. The family then drifted off to sleep. The mob then arrived at the home and took their places surrounding the house. James Carroll entered the home taking out his handcuffs, and he came upon Tom Donnelly as he slept. Carol then told him he was under arrest. Being in a small home, everyone woke up, at this point, from the commotion. James Sr. entered the room, and according to Johnny O'Connor, asked, what have you got us on now? Carol replied something about another charge, and Tom asked him to read the warrant. Carroll then made his signal to the group outside, and according to Johnny, A whole crowd jumped in and commenced hammering them with sticks and spade. Bridget ran up the stairs and Johnny followed, hiding under a bed. Mr. and Mrs. Donnelly were beaten to death, and Tom, who was trying anything to help his parents, ran out of the front room and outside. Johnny heard them hitting Tom outside before they brought him back in. And Johnny heard one of the men say, hit that fellow with a spade and break his skull open. After that, he heard some blows and Tom exclaiming in pain. Once the men were done with the family members downstairs, they started to look for the girl they had seen, Bridget. At this point, no one had seen Johnny O'Connor, and because they were not expecting him to be there, they didn't know to look for him. They found Bridget hiding upstairs, and they beat her to death as well. They brought her downstairs and placed her body with Tom, James Sr., and Joanna and then set the house on fire. Johnny waited under that bed, smelling smoke and listening to the mob retreating, waiting for the moment that he could make a clean escape. He finally ran from the house past the bodies in the front room and ran to a neighbor's house. Johnny did recognize some of the men in the mob and immediately told the neighbor what he saw and who he saw. This part of the night was known as the first massacre, and the second was well on its way. The mob made their way to William Donnelly's home at Wayland's Corners. John Donnelly and a friend, Martin Hogan, were spending the night with William and his wife, Nora. Everyone was asleep, and William remembers being awoken by John leaving his room, saying that he wanted to see who was rapping at the door. Will explained in court that John was staying in a room where he had to pass through Will and Nora's room to get to the kitchen. John went straight to the door and opened it. Will said that he heard voices yelling outside, and he recognized the voices and heard them yelling, fire, fire, open the door, Will. Once John opened the door, he was shot twice, and William said that he could smell the gunpowder, that the gun had to be close. When John felt back, he landed against William's bedroom door. William said that John said, Will, Will, I'm shot, may the Lord have mercy on my soul. The friend that was staying with them told William to stay out of sight, that if they saw he was not the one they shot, they would come back for him and kill them all. Nora ran to John's side and said that she didn't care if she was shot. They could hear the mob talking outside, and William peeked through the blind to see the men that he recognized, some that he knew for his entire life, standing outside of his home. They stayed in the bedroom with the body of John as he passed, and thankfully, relatively quickly. The mob remained outside but never entered. They eventually decided it was time to leave, and supposedly one of the men was heard saying, There's been enough bloodshed tonight, boys. Let's go home. In the morning light, William discovered the terrifying sight outside of his home. Footsteps leading up to all windows and around the perimeter. The coroner was sent for and William learned of the fire and the deaths of his parents, his brother, and his cousin. I wish I could say that there was some sort of justice to come from the murders, but sadly, even with testimony from Johnny O'Connor and William Donnelly, who saw and recognized many of the members of the group, there would be no satisfying conclusion for the remaining Donnellys. Friends and family of the Vigilant Society supported the men and backed their alibi stories. Many of the stories were intertwined with other men in the group. The jury deliberated for four hours and could not come to a conclusion. It was nearly impossible. There was a second trial, but it was more of the same. And it was clear they were just not going to find a verdict of any kind. The prejudices against the Donnellys were deeply ingrained in many Lucan residents. And a lot of evidence, artifacts, and even the story of the Donnellys, and what happened in 1880, were covered up for decades. This is such a complex story and years of animosity, hatred, accusations, and bad blood. But was any of this cause to murder five people? Never. The headstone for the Donnellys for many years listed murdered with each person's death date. And this was a huge point of contention within the community. The questions this raised for people who didn't know the story brought up things that residents did not want to talk about. There are many reports that this headstone was vandalized and the church eventually gave the headstone back to the family and it was replaced with one that did not say murdered. When I spoke with Thomas of the Lucan Area Heritage and Donnelly Museum, he told me that even today, Sadly, people will go to the gravesite and will chip off pieces of the headstone as a souvenir. To which I responded, I'm sorry, what? That is disgusting, disturbing, and I hope that any listeners here would never do that. I think sometimes when an incident and a story has become infamous, it also becomes impersonal. There have been so many books written about the Donnellys. There was a TV show. There's a band called the Black Donnellys. And somehow I think that makes people feel like they have the right to an experience. They have a right to take a piece because it's become less personal. But what we have to remember is that no matter the media around this, the time that has passed since, these were real people. This was a family who was murdered brutally. And there are no souvenirs to be had, nor should you want a souvenir to be had, by taking a piece of their headstone. So like I said, I am sure none of the real scary listeners would do this. But if you see someone doing this, please say something or report this because that is just gross. Let's be respectful. Now I did reach out to the current owners of the Donnelly's Homestead, where they actually used to do tours up until fairly recently, I believe. But unfortunately, they don't provide tours or interviews anymore. They were very pleasant, um, but they just asked for privacy as they enjoy their retirement, which I completely understand. So make sure to kind of keep this in mind. I do believe that there is still a sign at the property that shows and announces that it is the Donnelly Homestead. You can still see the structure from the road. So if you happen to be passing by, that's great. I'm sure you can stop, take a look. But remember to please respect that this is a private residence. There are many different stories, and one of the more outlandish ones is that the Donnelly's ghosts will rise from their graves to fight other ghosts on the anniversary of their deaths. There are many photos online and stories of strange anomalies that will show up in photos of people who stand next to the Donnelly's grave. Supposedly also there are coins commonly left on the tombstone, because it's believed that if you make a wish, the Donnellys will grant it. So that's kind of interesting, and there are actually some other really kind of neat reasons that people leave coins on a grave, and I'll actually be talking about those things in a later episode. When I spoke with Thomas, he said that he personally hadn't had any paranormal incidents but that the property owner had definitely had many experiences over the years and has even said that Joanna Donnelly saved his life on many occasions. Now, of course, just like me, Thomas doesn't know the exact details of the encounters, but he said that she had notified him on different things and let him know that she was watching over him. In doing research for this episode, it definitely seems like this would be something that Joanna would have done in life for her family. And perhaps she sees the current owners as family since they worked so hard in preserving the integrity of the Donnelly name and have shared their stories for so many years. I found an article from 2008 that I will link in the blog where the owner said that he's had paranormal groups that have caught various EVPs and even images of faces looking out of some of the windows. There's a very well-known legend that horses cannot cross the Roman line on the night of February 3rd and the morning of the 4th. Though another version is that you cannot bring a horse to the Roman line ever, or it will freak out. I did talk with Thomas about this, and he said yes, this is a common legend around the area. A former owner of the home has given numerous interviews about the activity in the barn. He said that horses will act as though they are possessed or terrified. The horses would need to be removed from the barn and then would be fine, Apparently during tours of the homestead many visitors would feel as though they were being watched. They would hear strange noises and hear footsteps. There are even stories of looking into the dark and being met with a pair of eyes. Now the barn on the property was built in 1877 so it is a structure that was still around when all of the Donnellys were alive. The home on the property was built after the original home had been burned down and it has been expanded over the years. So it's not surprising that if the spirits of the Donnellys are still present on the property, they would be drawn to the structure that is most familiar to them. I will post a link to an amazing website at www.donnellys.com. It's a really great site with so much information. So if you would like to know more, they also have photos that they've been allowed to share from one of the Donnelly descendants. So I will link that as well. Now there's a place that you can go to see some of the artifacts that still exist, and to learn a bit more about this family and their tragic story. And that is the Lucan Area Heritage and Donnelly Museum. Now as I said, I spoke to Thomas, who is the museum supervisor, and kind of a semi-curator. He basically implements the decisions of the Heritage Committee. Thomas and I chatted about the fine line in cases like this where you want to honour the victim and share their story, but also not be exploitive. Thomas pointed out to me that while the demographic of the community is changing, and there is more of a desire to talk about the Donnellys, there are still residents with deep roots that actually go back to this time, and there can still be a little bit of pushback on this subject. So it sounds like the museum tries really hard to approach the subject in the most sensitive way possible. Now, we know that the night the family home was burned down, sadly, that means there aren't many artifacts that were saved or able to be saved. But on top of that, the desire to bury the story resulted in much of the artifacts that could have been saved to be lost by choice. There are, however, some family descendants who have some pieces that they've loaned to the museum exhibit, which is really amazing. Thomas also told me about a cabin that they have that gives museum goers a more immersive look into the history. Now, I thought maybe this was a reconstruction of the home, but he said it's an actual home from the same period that was relocated to the museum's site. It is the same floor plan as the Donnelly home was. And so that's a really neat element to their exhibit. Thomas said that some people have experienced some eerie things in that home. He told me of another employee a few years back who decided to participate in a seance in the cabin. They could feel the presence of two children in that room. So they put a doll and a toy truck in the center of the circle and said, if you want to communicate with us, move one of the toys. And the old style fire truck rolled forward about a foot which caused one person to scream and run away, he said. The employee told Thomas that she stayed and looked. There were no strings or anything she could see. So that made a believer out of her. So that story isn't directly related to the Donnellys, but kind of an interesting side story if you do visit the museum. Another thing to note is that they are hoping to do some escape rooms in the cabin, which is very on trend right now. But again, we were talking about, you know, He has the very unique task of making sure that it's done in a tasteful way. But it'll be kind of a cool way to engage in the history of the town and the history of the Donnellys. So this brings me to the end of the episode on the Donnellys. I hope that this episode has shed some light on the real story of this family. Needless to say, I was really interested by the real story and got a better sense of who this family was. I'm happy for the descendants of this family, that the story is being shared more and more. Please make sure to check out the next episode, I'll be talking about the Banff Springs Hotel and a story from the United States that is so unbelievable, I have never forgotten it. Be sure to check out the blog so you can see all of the supporting material for this episode. Thank you again to Thomas and the Lucan Area Heritage and Donnelly Museum for talking with me. Be sure to please, please check out this amazing place. And as always, please let them know where you heard about the Donnellys and the museum. Until next time, this is your friendly neighbourhood host, Elise.